As we get into Job chapter 2, have you ever been watching something on TV and suddenly you think, I think I've seen this before. I kind of remember this plot line, or I remember that that interaction between those characters. When we get to Job chapter 2, it almost feels like, haven't we already read this? But there's a purpose for us. I hope you'll stick with me as we get into this. There are a number of similarities here. Uh, As you look at verses 1 through 3, it's almost identical to Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So why does the writer repeat it? There's a purpose in it, and we need to be thinking about that as we go through, and we'll talk about that in a minute. In these 10 verses, Job's testing is going to intensify greatly. You think about the end of chapter 1. How many of you want to be Job at the end of chapter 1? Job has lost pretty much everything. And you sometimes get to the point where you say, can it get any worse? And anybody with any wisdom will always tell you, don't ask that question. Because for Job in chapter 2, it's about to get worse. And so as we set this all up, we begin thinking about what's going on. At this point, he's lost his possessions. He's lost his children. He still has his wife. He's going to wonder if that's a good thing by the end of the chapter. And he's got some quote-unquote friends who have good intentions, but he's going to wonder about them too before the book's over. So all of this is going on in Job's life. And we forget the fact that not only did he lose his possessions and his children, in this chapter he's about to lose his health, but he's also lost a lot of other things. And again, if you weren't able to be here Wednesday, you kind of missed some of the background behind this because because of who Job was. As the patriarch of his family, he's lost his honor and respect and standing in the community. Because as the patriarch of his family, it was his responsibility to provide for their needs. And he just lost everything. Not only did he just lose everything, it was his responsibility as the patriarch of the family to protect his family. And he just lost all ten of his children. So we need to keep some of that in mind as well because we're about to look at a response in the middle of this chapter of Job's wife. And can I ask you right now, give her a little bit of a break. Uh, Some of the commentaries are just really harsh when we get to Job's wife. And we'll talk about this. But remember the fact that Job's wife is walking through this with him. She has lost everything. She has lost all of her standing in the community. And not only did she lose all of her standing, but she went from the top dog in the community Again, when you read Job chapter 1, he was the richest man in that far eastern area that he lived in. And so she had lost the respect of that. Not only that, but I think more important to Job's wife, she'd lost all ten of her children in one event. So keep that in mind as we go through this, because we look at this again. And when God looked at Satan and brought up somebody, who did he bring up? He said, if you looked at my servant... He didn't say if you looked at my servant Job's wife, but she was brought along with it. And her reaction is going to give us, again, a little bit more insight into what's actually going on here. So what we're going to see, basically, this is testing round two. And again, it kind of goes against the grain of what we think testing ought to be like as Christians, doesn't it? Be honest. When you're suffering, when you're going through some kind of a trial, whether it's health or finances or family, whatever it may be, and you get on your knees in prayer, what do you ask God to do? Lord, be nice if this could come to an end and you take it away. And actually, it'd be even nicer if you do it now. And even if we're not verbalizing all of that, when we pray about it, we're thinking about it. And as Job comes to the end of chapter 1, 
And as he communes with his God and as a man who held his integrity and his dignity and held his relationship with God, I'm sure Job was communing with God. And what do you think is at the bottom of Job's request? Lord, help. You know, what's going, what, what's going on here? We're going to see that in chapter 3. We won't get to it today. But we're going to get a, a unique look into Job's mindset as he tries to deal with these things, even as he hangs on to his integrity. But we're going to see, first of all, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, another summons by God to the sons of God. We look in the beginning of chapter 1. It says, And again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Can we stop there for just a minute? It's almost the grace of God that Job doesn't get to hear these conversations. Because what happened last time God asked that question? And so Job is totally in the dark about this, but here is the question of God to Satan again. Have you considered my servant Job? Now again, remember as we read the rest of this verse, this is after chapter 1 has taken place. And what is God's testimony about the man Job? There is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. What did God say about Job in chapter 1? There's none like him on the earth. A just and an upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And he's got the exact same testimony for him after all these issues. After he lost his possessions. After he lost his children. He still looks and he says, naked I came into the world. Naked I'll go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The God giveth and God taketh away. And God looks and says, have you considered Job? Now again, as we look at this and we read through this, we've got to understand what's happening here again in this summons. And again, I don't know if it was me or the preaching I heard, but I remember hearing preaching on the book of Job. And I always got this idea that, you know, God's calling his holy angels to give account before him and somehow Satan sneaks in, you know, and he gets access. And that's not what's happening here. You're looking at at verse one of chapter two. It says, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself. Why? Because God said he had to. And evidently, this was somewhat of a regular procedure with God. Because it happened in chapter 1, and it happens in chapter 2. And again, as he comes, and as he talks about Job, and he asks about Job, what does God do first? He looks at Satan and says, what? Where have you come from? And Satan, in characteristic, sarcastic answer, gives him an answer that's no answer at all. To and fro, up and down, going on the earth. And God says to him again, what? Have you considered my servant Job? Again, why did God ask him that question? When we look through the scriptures, are there questions God asks us to consider at times? Is God asking us and does he ask Satan that question because he doesn't know the answer? I ask lots of questions that I don't know the answer to, but God knows the answer. So what's the purpose? He's guiding the conversation. So who's in control of this conversation? It's not that Satan snuck in amongst these guys. And it's not that Satan's coming up and saying, hey, I'm going to throw God a curveball. God's about to throw Satan another curveball. And the last one didn't go so well for him. So he says, have you considered my servant Job? And then as he talks about Job again, he says, there's none like him on the earth. And we just read all those wonderful things about him. But he tacks something on the end of it. 
Satan left the presence of God in chapter 1 convinced of what? If I take everything away from Job, he will curse God to his face. In fact, Satan was counting on it. He wanted to challenge God and challenge how God works and challenge God's manner of, of dealing with Job and saying, you know what? You're kind of favoring the guy. That's why he does what he does. Let me show you what life is really like. Is Satan going to show God what life is really like? But he's trying. He's doing his best. And he comes back and God looks. And again, I wish I could hear. I don't know that God uses sarcasm. Satan obviously is trying to. But in the face of Satan's sarcasm and all these sarcastic responses he gives to God, God looks at him and says, have you considered Job? Remember what I told you about him? Oh, by the way, he fills in the end of it, and he holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. God looks at Satan and says, basically what? You left here from the presence of heaven almost giddy last time, like I could take everything away from Job, and then I'm going to watch him curse God and come back and say, see, I told you so. That was his intent. He comes back now, and he's pretty silent. Had Job cursed God, do you think Satan would have answered him and said, where have you come from? Oh, to and fro, here and there. Now he's, I just came from Job's house. Did you hear what he said? And Satan doesn't bring it up. Why? Because Satan looked and said, blessed be, or Job looked and said, blessed be the name of the Lord, in spite of Satan's attack. And now God looks and reminds him, he still holds his integrity. And that word there, to hold his integrity, is an amazing thing. It means to cling to, to grasp. To not want to let go of. And he looks and he said, not only did Job pass the test, but he's hanging on to everything I told you about him being a blameless man. Because he loves me in spite of the goodness that I've given him, not because of it. And so he looks at Satan and says there, you know, he holds on to his integrity. Even though, and now we get an interesting verse. God says this and says, even though what? You incited me against him. There's some theological issues we've got to grasp, grapple with with that. Was it Satan's idea to attack Job? Who brought Job up in the first place? God did, not Satan. And Satan asked permission. In fact, what this, when Satan asked permission, what did he ask for permission for? For God to take it away from him. I don't know that Satan, when he asked God to do something about Job, was expecting to have Job God say, here, I'll put him in your hands. You take it away from him. But God looks and says, from our perspective, looking at it, you incited me against him, and I let you do it. It's not like God looked back and said, how did I let him do that? You ever get in a conversation with somebody? You know, I, I always, when I get in conversation with my kids sometimes, I know it when they call me. A lot of times my kids call me now as adults because their car's not working. They love their dad. But you know, they're, they're calling me, and I try to get out of it sometimes by saying, you need to take that to the mechanic. And at the end of the conversation, I find myself either promising to send them parts or work on their cars. And I look back and say, how did that happen? Do you think God came to the end of the conversation with with Satan and said, how did that happen that I put Job in his hands? Oh, God knew he was going to do that from the beginning. And he looks at Satan and says, by the way, even though you think you incited me against him to destroy him, and that word destroy is, is an interesting word. It's a word that's used elsewhere in the scriptures of when the people rebelled. Korah and his group rebelled against Moses. And it says the, word, the earth opened up and swallowed them. It's the same word in the Hebrew. In other words, everything Job's had has been swallowed up and is gone. 
It's, take, it's all been taken. You let me do that. And you did it to him without reason. Now, we need to understand what he means again by without reason. It's not that the fact that God said, oh, you know, this just kind of scattered. It just happened. You know, it's it just one of those things that I, you know, not paying attention while I'm running the universe and something happened. It's not what he's saying there. He's not saying without reason from the fact that, you know, I just I decided that I was going to be a little bit cruel and harsh to somebody. What he's saying is there was no reason in Job's life for this to have taken place. Job is a righteous man. That's why Job is struggling by the end of chapter 2. He's looking and saying, I can't find the sin in my life that would cause this. I'm a man of integrity, and I know who God is, and I know how God works, and the two didn't go together. And God's looking and saying, even in the midst of Job struggling with this, you know he's hanging on to his integrity, Satan. And you failed. You failed. And so you would think that Satan would do what at that point? Go find somebody else. There's plenty of us that he could have gone after that we might have had a higher time than Job did. But what does Satan do? Look at the next verse. There's an accusation in verses 4 through 5. Satan's not done accusing God. He said in verse 4, Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. And again, this is probably an old proverb from his time. Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. Satan's not giving up. He's looking and saying, here, let me grab this, this proverb of the time that basically means, you know, a man will give up a whole lot of things if he can keep himself healthy, intact, and not have any problems. And that's what you did for Job. Well, let's face it. You told me I could take away everything, and you wouldn't let me touch Job himself. Now, again, think about the reality of that statement. How many of you who are parents or grandparents would look and say, you know what? I'd rather lose my grandchildren and my children than be sick. But Satan's using that tactic. He's saying, you know, he gave up everything, but he's okay. And that's why he didn't curse you. And so he goes after this once again, and he's accusing God. He said, you know, you pulled a fast one on me. You know, I went after him. If you'd only said I could get Job too, it'd be fine. And, but you didn't do that. And if you had, if you'd reached out and touched the very bones in his very flesh... He'd have cursed you. How many of you ever been in pain? Pain head to toe. I, I've sat with some folks. I've never been in that kind of pain, but I've sat at the bedside with some folks that were like that and, and just was in tears with them, in sympathy. Because it's a terrible experience when you've got pain that you can't get rid of. And Job's looking, or, or Satan's looking at Job and said, you know what? If you let me do that, he'd curse you to your face. He's seeking to att- intensify Job's testing and his suffering and you would think at that point that god would say you know you already blew it i gave you an opportunity it didn't work but what does god say look at what happens next the permission he gives him verse six and the lord said to satan behold he's in your hand only spare his life now think about the depths of this he said all right i put job's very being in your hands and you have to, but you have to spare his life. Does Job know that? When you read about the sickness of Job, we only get the tip of the iceberg in this first section, chapter 2. But if you read through the rest of the book, and when Job brings it up time and time again, what Job had was an excruciating disease that was inflicted upon him by Satan. And my guess is Job wondered if that was going to be a terminal disease. Job didn't know. There were terminal diseases in his day. And they didn't have the medical knowledge that we have in our day. And so here Job is 
struggling through all this and not knowing that God said, here's the line. Job never knew where the line was. And yet he held on to his integrity regardless of where the line is. Don't we want to draw lines sometimes in our service for the Lord? In our lives? God, I'm willing to serve you, but you know, remember how good a Christian I've been, so you shouldn't do this to me. Or you should take that away because I've been a good guy. Or I've been a good gal and I've done what you've asked me to do. He had no idea where that was. And then look at verses 7 through 8. Once he has permission, you see the attack. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he, Job, took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Satan goes, and look at verse 7, because I don't even think we get the full gist of it when we're just skimming through it quickly. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job. My guess is it was like that. God said, okay, Satan left there. He'd been embarrassed before God, so he was going to prove his point. And immediately upon leaving the presence of God, where do you think Satan went? He went straight to Job. And he doesn't only afflict him, but he gives him loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And we're going to find, as we read through some of this, some of the implications of this issues that he had. I mean, he just, he became emaciated. He couldn't eat. You don't know, his friends aren't going to recognize him at the end of this chapter as they come in to see him. And so here he is. And not only that, but he says in verse 8, he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he was in the ashes. He's scraping himself with pottery to get rid of these oozing sores and boils. You're like, okay, that's enough before lunch. But Job is suffering. And it's interesting because most commentators, and it's hard to tell for sure, there's no means of clearly knowing whether Job is doing this at his home or whether he's doing it out in public. But in Job's day, just outside the cities, the towns, there was what was called a big refuge, an ash heap. And you threw the ashes from your cooking in in your homes out on there and threw them on the heap. And when the pottery broke, you took your pottery and you didn't wait for them to pick it up on garbage day. You took it out to that heap and you threw it on the heap. And if you were in mourning or you were just had been disgraced terribly and you had no place else to go, often you'd find people that were either diseased or desperate sitting on that heap and just mourning. And it's quite likely that Job is sitting on that heap because when you get to verse 8, it says when the sores came, he grabbed the broken pottery. Had he been sitting on that heap of ashes outside the city in disgrace, there would have been pottery everywhere for him to do exactly what the verse says. And so people are seeing this great man suddenly probably on the outskirts of town and he's scraping himself, trying to get relief. And in the midst of trying to get relief of everything that's happening from this attack, we have a confrontation. Now, it's bad enough the confrontation he's already had with Satan. He doesn't even know it was with Satan. But now we have another confrontation, verses 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, and again, I picture this, I wonder if he wasn't outside the city and his wife came to find him in the midst of all this. And his wife says to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. This wasn't the neighbor that he didn't get along with. This wasn't a businessman that was in the, the town that felt like he was a little bit jealous because Job had had more than he had. This was his wife. And his wife comes to Job and she says to him very directly, do you still hold fast to your integrity? You know the wonderful thing about that is in the midst of all this, the person that was probably closest to him other than God looked at him and said, how in the world, that's what the, the, verse, the, the question, how in the world are you still holding fast to your integrity? 
How can you do that? Because in her mind, as in the friends' minds that are about to come visit Job, they believed that God's blessing came as a part of our obedience. And God's punishment came when we were disobedient. And she's looking at Job and saying, you are my patriarch. You were supposed to protect me and my children and my goods. And it was your responsibility to take care of all of my needs. And you can't even take care of your own anymore. And she goes, and she's desperate. She's lost everything just like Job. And in losing everything, she comes out and she sees this man head to toe, covered with sores. And we say, wow, I can't believe she said what she just said. You know, there's probably some mercy in what she just said because she believes at the bottom of her heart, Job, you've lost it all. You've got nothing left to live for. You've got nothing left to give us as the patriarch. You are in such suffering. If you would just curse God, I believe at the bottom of my heart, he will take you like that and it'll be over. Now, I can't tell you what was in the bottom of her heart because scripture doesn't tell us. You know, it doesn't even give us her name. We don't know what her name was, but she came in the midst of his suffering and said, Job, even though you're holding on to your integrity, it's time to stop and curse God and die and be done with this. Now, I look at Job, and again, as a husband, I look at Job and think, don't you have enough trouble? Look at the way he answers her. He looks at his wife, and he said, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Now, I'm not very smart sometimes, but I learned early on that would be a bad way to approach any kind of a discussion with my wife. That was foolish. Why'd you say that? Even if, if I think it, I kind of slap myself. Don't think like that. You're going to get yourself in. But that's, Job looks at his wife, and he said, you're talking like the foolish women. Again, we don't know exactly who he means the foolish women were, but we know what the point is. The point is what you just said is wrong. It doesn't line up with my picture My picture of my God, it might line up with yours, but that's foolish because God is good and God is in control and God has a reason for this. And Job's going to struggle later with all those things. But as he's starting out, he's looking and saying, how can you say that? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And the interesting thing, I looked at this and said, you know, Job, you really shouldn't have said that to your wife. But I don't know what Job's heart was. I don't know the way he said it. I know how it looks on paper. But you know what the Lord tells us about that? Look at the end of the verse. It said, in all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. Job's motivation was not to belittle his wife. It wasn't to humiliate her. It was to direct her back to God and say, remember who God is. And in the Hebrew, the word order is a little bit different than what we have here. But basically, the word order in the Hebrew says, good shall we receive from God and not evil. And Job looked back, and even after having lost everything, he recognized that we would never have been where we had been had it not been for God. And that same God has put us where we are now. And we ought to be okay with that. That's a tough concept, isn't it? Especially in a day and age where we've kind of been told, you know, you're struggling with your life, come to Christ. He'll straighten everything out for you. Well, he'll take care of your biggest problem. You remember the friends who brought the the, the paralytic man to Christ and dropped him down through the roof? And Jesus Christ looked at him and he said, take up your bed and walk. Is that the first thing he said to him? He looked at the man and said, son, your sins be forgiven you. What was that man's greatest need? He needed to be right with God. And there he is. And the son of God is forgiving the sins of this man. 
And he's taking care of his greatest need as he's doing all of that. And as Job's looking at this whole thing, he's saying, you know what the greatest need is? Is to believe God is still good. And God's still in control. And God's going to do what needs to be done. And in the life of the paralytic man, he said, okay, so that you Pharisees and others who don't believe I have the power to do that, pick up your bed and walk. And he picked up his bed and walked. And Job's looking at that same, without that story to rely on, without all the New Testament about the verses of suffering to rely on, just from his knowledge of the character of God. Job is looking at all this and says, you know what? God gives us good and God gives us, and when he says evil, he's not saying evil from a sinful thing. He's saying the word in Hebrew again means bad things, the things that just took place in his life. And by this time, it's in his very body. He's feeling like he just wants to die. Everything is going against Job at this time. And he looks at it, and all of this, he didn't sin with his lips. Is it any wonder that God looked at this man when he, looked at it, when he was talking to Satan and said, Consider Job because there's no one like him. In the midst of suffering and frustration, have you ever thought or said something that like, you thought, Oh, that's not right. In our very nature, we often do that. But when we're looking at Job, at least up until now, Job has handled this with the perspective of his faith in God, that God was such a good, benevolent God, that even in the midst of this confrontation with his wife, instead of despairing, instead of cursing God and dying, I mean, she's the last thing he had on earth. Did you think, do you realize that? He's lost his kids. He's lost his possession. He's lost any privilege and rank and honor that he's got in society. And the last thing he has left is his wife, and she comes out and says, what can I do for you, Job? He said, curse God and die. Be done with it. And in the midst of all that, he still looks and says, God is the one who's in control of all these things. Even though we've lost everything. Even though things aren't the way that we would like them to be. And that question that he asks his wife, did he expect an answer? Shall we not receive good things from God, good things from God and also evil? What was he expecting? In the midst of his suffering, that's a rhetorical question. What he's expecting is God to do a work in his wife's heart. The interesting thing is we have no idea what God did with that. The scripture doesn't tell us. We're not going to actually hear from Lot's wife or from Job's wife again. Can you imagine? It would it'd be wonderful in some ways to be recorded in scripture. In some other ways, do you want your only speech in scripture to be curse God and die? But what happens at the end of the story? God's going to still use her. And I wonder, and it's wondering, I can't prove it from Scripture, but I wonder if this confrontation didn't have a work that was done in her heart because later on they're going to be restored. They're going to get new family. They're going to get wealth again like they've never had before. And you wonder if God's not using Job in the midst of suffering to touch somebody else's heart. That's a lesson for us. It's been a lesson for me for as long as I've been pastoring. I almost never go visit somebody in the hospital or in the rehab center that I don't come away and think, I was supposed to be a blessing to them, and they were a blessing to me when folks' hearts are right. If you ever go visit Helen Stepp, whether she's in the hospital or the rehab, I'm thinking, boy, it's a good thing she's a woman or she'd be preaching to me every Sunday. Because she's just got, got a love for the Lord. I went to see Carmen. You know, Carmen's fallen. She's been to the hospital. Now she's in the rehab center. She likes her independence, okay? And it, it, she wasn't complaining. She's, she's longing to go home. 
But she was still getting along, doing okay, getting herself in trouble when she was getting up when she wasn't supposed to, and keep that in prayer. But I looked, I thought, it was one, and my wife suggested, hey, she suggested without my reading glasses, which was dangerous. How about reading a psalm for, for uh, Carmen out of her Bible, and the Bible that was left for her, I don't know how she reads it, because I picked it up and all I saw was a blur. So I'm holding the Bible out here, and, and I'm reading Psalm 42, and I get to the end, and you know what happens? She's quoting the end of the chapter before I can get there. That's how we ought to be with folks, regardless of what we're going through. If we trust God, if we believe God. And that's, I think, part of what Job does here as he's going through all of this. And then we finish this section with Job's companions. Job's companions are an interesting group of guys. We read here, beginning in verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort. So again, be careful being too critical of Job's friends. They came from afar. They didn't take an Uber. They didn't jump in their cars or catch a flight. It was probably a task to get from wherever they were to get to Job because they heard about it. And they got together and they made an appointment to come and to be there. And why did they come? When we get in the middle of the book, we think, oh, they came to preach at Job and just give him a tongue lashing. But that's not why they came, is it? What does the Spirit of God say about when they came? It says, they came in that verse to show him sympathy and comfort. And then verse 12, and when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Why didn't they recognize him? Boils, emaciated. Satan had done a number on this man. And so they look from afar and they don't even recognize their friend. And then it says further, they raised their voices and they wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. So here we have these companions. They come from afar. Their purpose is sympathy and comfort. They want to help Job. Did they have any idea what they were getting into when they decided to come see Job? We, we know they didn't because as they finally see Job and see what's going on, what's their reaction? They wept. You know the interesting thing about this book? You can look at it from cover to cover and you never find Job weeping. The one person who should have been weeping is Job. And his friends saw this terrible situation that he's in and they're weeping for him. Not only do they weep for him, but then they show their mourning as they, as they get together and as there's a camaraderie there when they don't recognize him, they weep for him. And then after that, they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. They were mourning with him. And again, I somewhat picture this as probably being outside the city on that ash heap because it shows the depths of their friendship. Because what happens to their reputations as they're sitting there with their robes torn and dust on their heads on the ash heap where those who have just been in despair and lost it all are sitting? They're willing to take a hit to their reputation just to be with Job. Not only that, but it goes on and says here, after they raised their voices and wept, after they tore their clothes, they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. You ever spend time with somebody who's grieving? who's mourning, who's having a rough time. That is emotionally draining. And they didn't get there and say, okay, how do we get out of here? This was a nice idea, but this is not for us. 
They sat with Job how long? Seven days and seven nights. In the ashes, mourning, sitting on the ground. And then it says at the end of this, And no one spoke a word to them, for they saw his suffering was very great. You ever get in a situation where somebody is sick or suffering, and you go over to try to encourage them, give them comfort, give them sympathy, and you walk through the door, and it's a lot worse than you thought, and you don't know what to say? What's our first inclination? Mine's usually, figure out something to say. Why? I came over here to fix the problem. Are Job's friends going to be able to fix this problem? They don't know what's going on up in heaven either, but God's got this under control. It's going to last as long as God determines that it's going to last. And the interesting thing about our passage, when it talks about Satan leaving the presence of God and attacking Job, that's the last you hear of Satan in the entire book. He failed. Is Job's trial over? No, he's got to listen to these three friends. Any of you try to read through chapters 3 through 35, 36 yet? Is it painful sometimes? Think of poor Job and everything he's been through, and he's getting it in person. And here we got this going on in the midst of all this and these friends. And, but for seven days, they loved Job enough to just sit there and be there, that their presence might be enough. And you know, sometimes that's what God wants us to do, just to be there for folks, just to show compassion for people. You don't have to have all the answers to do that. Job and his friends didn't have any of the answers, and then when they gave their answers, they gave them the wrong ones. But they cared about Job. They were sympathetic. They were there to comfort. They were there doing the best they could. And so what do we do with all of this? How do we react to all of this? How do we assess Job in all of this? What are our takeaways from these two chapters? And we're going to finish with this this morning. Because in chapter 3, we're going to get a unique look into the heart of Job. What's Job thinking as he's sitting on this ash heap for seven days with his friends? Until chapter 3, we don't have any idea. We're going to get a look at it in chapter 3. But what is Job's testimony up until now? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you live like that? Shall we not receive evil as well as good from the hand of the Lord? Do you believe that? There's a little bit deep inside of us, something in our makeup and our nature that really does like the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, isn't it? If I turn to Christ, he'll make me healthy, wealthy, maybe even wise. Is that the promise in this book? He said he'll take care of us. The question is, is God taking care of Job? Yeah, but he's doing it in God's way. And Job is going to glorify God through this book in a way that he could not have done without going through what he's going through. And the question is, what's more important to you today? Is it your comfort? Is it your family? Is it glorifying your God? The only way Job's able to answer the way he answers is because Job's purpose for living was to glorify his God. And through all of it, he hangs on to his integrity. He testifies for God. And Job makes a difference. And we can do the same if we learn the lessons from this book. Let's pray. Father, again, we've just gone through most of the background. A lot of the teaching, a lot of the truths, a lot of what you have to leave with us in this book is in the chapters to come. So I pray that you'll give us the desire, the motivation to stick with it as we go through this book, to look for your hand 
even in the discussions that are taking place. Lord, to realize what is truth and what is our perception of the truth and what we need to correct to have the truth according to your word and your way and the way that you work. Lord, we thank you for the example of Job. Job is really an incredible man when we think of all that he went through and yet he placed his faith and trust in you and did not sin with his lips. God, I pray that you'll help us to learn those lessons, to really truly believe what Job believed. And then, Lord, as we do those things, that you'll use it to change our lives, to impact those around us, and to glorify you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.